Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Today's reading is taken from John 18, 33-40. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or does others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who have handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. It's my privilege to lead Westminster Chapel. I am a six foot two tall, 21 year old black man born and raised in Nairobi. What, you, you, you got a problem with that? Um, who are you to choose to, to say that I can't identify in the way that I want to identify? Um, I don't believe that, actually. I just wanted a provocative way to get your attention uh, as I start this message, but also to set the scene, really, for the topics that we are tackling today. And the big issue I want to discuss with you is truth versus choice. Today, I believe that we live in a world that is ruled by choice, a a few years ago, a journalist in America went to one of the big well-known universities and spoke to the nation's future uh, leaders. And they, this journalist, had a conversation with them and he described himself as not being what he was. He was a five foot nine inch um, white guy and he, um, just bear with us, I think we're struggling a little bit with the slides, we'll get that, it's okay. Um, so he was a five foot nine inch white guy and he went along to a number of people and he said, um, how do you feel if I present as a six foot five Chinese woman? And most of the students, they were fine about that. He then said, what if I identify as a seven year old person? And they said, if you feel seven at heart, good for you. And then he said, well, because I identify as a seven-year-old, I think that I have the right to attend school with other seven-year-olds. At that moment, they all sort of stepped back and were slightly aghast at that prospect. They started to feel very uncomfortable about that. It only went so far, this idea of my choice versus truth. We live in a world today where little t choice, my feelings has gone to war against capital T, truth. 
There's a great quote about this from a very influential man today. He's called Tristan Harris. He was a former design ethicist at Google. And he has founded something called the Center for Humane Technology. And he says this, If we don't agree on what is true, or that there is such a thing as capital T truth, we are toast. This is the problem beneath other problems, because if we can't agree on what's true, then we can't navigate out of any problems. I think that may be the most important thing that anybody has said so far this year. If you haven't gathered already, today is an extremely controversial message. I would just ask for your grace as I share that. I'll explain why we're doing that as we go through. And also today is the first time that I'm actually preaching live to Westminster Chapel since March. So, And there's nobody in the room. <laughs> it's a very strange experience. I can't tell how well this is going. Well, one person is actually giving me some thumbs up, a few others, which is, which is, which is great. So it's an unusual experience. And we're tackling this most sensitive topic, the problem beneath the problem of abortion. Now, last year, I spoke on this topic. Uh, we're aiming as a church to speak on this every year. We've already got next year's guest speaker booked. And the focus that I gave last year, the big takeaway, and you can find the message in the notes if you want to go back and catch up, was grace. It's grace. Whether you've had an abortion, whether you're contemplating an abortion, we want you to know absolutely that God has nothing but love, mercy, and grace for you. And we said that this isn't just for those who've had an abortion. There are many other types of sin of which this is just one among a huge number. And we're all guilty. We've all fallen short of God's standard, his mercy, his grace. We're all in need of rescue. We're all sinners. We've all sinned sexually with our minds and with our bodies. We all need mercy. This is not a message of judgment. We're not looking down and judging those who've had abortions or been involved in that, saying, oh, aren't we superior? No way. That is not the message of the Christian faith, and it's not our heart as a church either. I'm not really even talking to people who've had an abortion so much. But if you have, if you've been involved in that, if you'd like prayer, hit the request prayer button, press pause on the service. We'd love to help you and offer help in any way that we can. I'm really talking to the whole church and even outside of the church, this message today. So I hope if, if you've had an abortion, I don't want you to feel singled out or judged in any way. But you may have two questions at home. The first of those might be, why on earth, Howard, would you risk being criticized by speaking out about abortion. And not just abortion, but I want to phrase it as abortion on demand. I'm not talking about abortion being done to save the life of the mother or rape. I want to distinguish it from that for the sake of today. Abortion on demand. Why would you, why would you risk so much criticism and flack that could come your way but by speaking about this? Well, I'm going to answer that shortly. But also you might be thinking, what right do you have to speak about this as a man? Now, let me tackle that issue first. I don't hate women. Um, I love the women in my life, <laughs> my wife, my daughter, my mum, my sister. I just believe that abortion is harmful to women. That sex without strings 
is damaging to women. And I don't want them to suffer in silence in any way in this church by not talking about this subject. Why do I think it's damaging? Well, I'll just give you one statistic. 23 million girls who will grow up to become, would have grown up to become women have already been rendered missing in India and China through sex-selective abortion. Abortion on demand is, make no mistake, anti-women. One in three women, before they reach the age of 45, will have had an abortion. That's not to make it about those women. It's men are involved, obviously, in that as, as well. And like I said already, but I want to say it again, we don't want to be a culture where people can't talk openly about this. Obviously, with the right people, we did a series called Unashamed. We want to be a place where we can, we can bring some of our darkness into the light of God for him to transform it for the better. But I do understand why it's hard to sometimes hear this topic from a man. It's maybe awkward or difficult. And so later we have a pre-recorded testimony from an amazing woman called Laura Mann. But I hope you're seeing already why, why we want to talk about this as a topic, why it really matters. Well, I could say because there's been 200,000 abortions, unborn children killed every year in the United Kingdom alone. Or I could say that there's a growing body of evidence about fetal pain that happens through the process of abortion. It's not neutral, it actually hurts what's happening. Or I could raise the issue of DIY abortions now being done at home because of a global pandemic and being rushed through through Parliament without proper parliamentary scrutiny, um, and now these happening in home without proper medical care and protection. We could talk about all those issues and why we need to talk about this subject, but the reason I want to land on today is that abortion on demand is a little bit like the cherry on top of the cake of a whole load of really bad thinking. Someone has called abortion on demand the sacrament of secular humanism. In a way that communion and baptism are the sacraments of the Christian faith, abortion on demand is this sacrament. It encapsulates, it brings together so much of the thinking, the bad thinking that results in abortion on demand. And my job as a church leader, our job as a church, is to be God's voice to a world exposing that wrong thinking, which is damaging and destructive, which hurts people, it harms people to, to live at its beck and call. That's, this thinking is sucking the very life out of them. And we have a responsibility to challenge all of this kind of idolatrous ways of thinking that underpin abortion. So when we talk about this subject, we're tackling all this sort of stuff at the same time. Whether it's postmodernism or sexism, uh, scientism. I have time really just to drill into two in particular. Firstly, materialism. This is our love of comfort. That we are conditioned to find our sense of value or worth in being economic agents. 
We're shaped by our culture, by society, to become entitled consumers, constantly wanting stuff to make us feel happy, to accumulate all this material object-like things, whether that's physical objects or whether it's letters at the end of your name, qualifications, degrees, status, symbols, all of that kind of stuff in the workplace. It's all about materialism. And we want to climb and climb and climb to feel more sense of value and, and worth. And that means that career is really, really important and how much you earn really, really matters. And babies are expensive. So they need to get sacrificed to that agenda. Here's the, the second example of bad thinking. It's proud progressivism. We in the West especially and in the 21st century, we think we're the pinnacle of civilized society. We think we've arrived. We think things are just going to get better and better and better, all that kind of stuff. Professor C.S. Lewis, author of the Chronicles of Narnia, he called that thinking chronological snobbery. And abortion on demand actually humbles us because it takes us right the way back, right the way back to primitive societies who are sacrificing their children to false gods. We don't look so great after all. We need to speak out against this, this wrong thinking because it's like a, a power, an evil power that Jesus came to destroy with his truth so that the truth would set us free. We need to speak out about it as a church. Otherwise, we're going to be educated by it, by the world out there, by what it says rather than the truths of, of the word of God. We need to speak out about it because there's people engaging with it right on the front lines in our congregations. They work. Doctors, nurses, midwives, teachers. And I need to speak out about it. If I'm, if I'm a coward in the pulpit, I'm not a great role model or example to follow. If I'm too scared to speak the truth, if I'm a coward in the pulpit, I'm going to encourage people to be cowards rather than being courageous in the culture. But perhaps one of the strongest reasons why I speak out about abortion on demand is because I've heard too many testimonies and stories of women who've had abortion. And the damage, it's not just done their unborn child, but the way it's deeply damaged them as women. The first time I heard Laura Mann's testimony that you're about to just hear now, I weeped. I heard a longer version and I wrote her and asked her, I said, would you, would you share your story with our church? It's a story we really need to hear that we might know the truth. Let's watch it now. I was 19 when I had a ab surgical abortion and I went to a hospital in South London to seek some advice with my partner at the time and we were told quite quickly into the discussion that a termination would be the best option if I didn't want to continue with the pregnancy anymore and in addition to that my partner had said to me that I had my whole life ahead of me when we stepped out the room to talk about it when he said those words to me it put me straight into a state of confusion and fear I felt an overwhelming sense of shame because I didn't know how I was going to tell my family. Um, I didn't know what my peers would think of me if I had a child so young. I didn't know much about abortion. I hadn't heard of it. So I 
literally after coming away from that hospital knew that it was going to end the life of my child and I struggled with that thought um, eventually I did give in to the pressure um, and into the fear factor of not wanting to raise a child at 19 on my own when I got there I was given some pills to take um, and I could feel my baby moving into my lower abdomen what I do know now is that my baby would have had a heart attack he, um, her heart, his heart would have stopped beating. Um, I was taken into theatre and I came out and went down to the recovery room being escorted by two nurses. I felt this deep sense of emptiness um, and I asked one of the nurses, where's my baby? And she had said to me, don't you know what you've done, you silly girl? I will never forget those words because they haunted me. I suffered from nightmares and cold sweats. I would cry myself to sleep because I was in so much pain and I just didn't know what to do. Um, during that time I came to salvation um, and God just began to do an amazing work of healing me. Um, but I would remember sitting down in the dead silence of the sermon and I would hear this high-pitched cry of a baby again. And I would look behind me and I would ask those beside me, God, can you hear this baby crying? And they would say no. I felt like I was being tormented. I went weeks of hearing this high-pitched cry of a baby and I just could not take it anymore. I plucked up the courage to go and speak to my pastor. But while I was um, in church and as a new believer, I had nothing heard nothing over the pulpit about abortion or the sanctity of life. Um, had a lady by the name of Ruth that one day she was going somewhere and she didn't tell me initially and I just continued to bug her and bug her and ask her, where are you going? Because we were meant to um, hold a, a ministry together and, and she cancelled and she said, no, I've got to, I've got to go on this course. Um, it turned out to be a a course by the name of Clarks, the Clarkson Academy and I went with her and um, we had some training about abortion and um, we went out to the Department of Health and we there was just posters of aborted babies and it hit me and I sobbed and I cried because that was the first time I had seen the reality of what abortion was actually I just didn't know what to do with myself, but I did feel a sense of healing and acceptance of what I had done and felt that God was doing a work in me. And I've just had the opportunity to share my story ever since, just to let people know that there is hope, there is hope for healing. And I would urge you to not feel like you need to keep silent if you have experienced it yourself um, and to just step forward and you know knowing that your pastor is wanting to talk about this within the church is a great opportunity for those that have been affected by abortion to come forward and receive healing because God is able he is big enough um, to take on abortion like just like any other sin.
through this at a very personal level, then we've got a team who'd, who'd be very happy to talk with you and pray with you about it without judgment. They just want you to know and encounter the love of God. But now we're going to take a, a step back to a, a more wide angle way of approaching this subject using John chapter 18 and the verses that were read to us before. So you might want to have them open in front of you. And in this amazing passage where Jesus is on trial for his life, Pontius Pilate asks Jesus a question. What is truth? It may not actually have been a question. It may have been more of a flippant and rhetorical statement because Pilate doesn't stay around to get an answer. Something more like, what is truth? And then he's off. But it's a very important question. I wonder, how would you, how would you answer this question? Jesus has actually already answered the question in his ministry in John chapter 14. He has said, I am the truth. Now, none of us could answer the question that way. Otherwise, we would be horribly arrogant to say that we're the truth. I'm the living, walking truth going around. And what I say goes. I'm the final answer to everything. But Jesus, the most humble person who ever walked the face of the earth, God himself, he can say that. And what's happening here is that loving skin has been put on unchanging, capital T, truth. And in this conversation that Jesus is having with Pilate, we learn three things about truth that can help us navigate out of the, the problems beneath the problems of, of abortion on demand. And I want to present these three things as three questions for you. And the first of those questions is, where are you getting your truth from? Where are you getting your, your truth from? Now, Jesus doesn't answer Pilate's question. It's often the way with Jesus. He actually asks a question back to Pilate. And in doing so, he's doing something quite extraordinarily. He's turning the tables. He is the man who's on trial for his life. But now he makes Pontius Pilate the man on trial about how he's going to respond to the truth about Jesus. And if you can get your head around it, what Jesus, what God is doing in this passage is he's putting us on trial. He's putting us in the place of Pontius Pilate. He's saying, how are you going to respond to the truth? Verse 34, I'm paraphrasing. Jesus is saying to Pontius Pilate, where are you getting your truth from? Are you just believing what other people are saying? Or are you, are you thinking for yourself? It's a challenge, not just to go with the flow. We're so often tempted to do that, the pressures of life, just to believe whatever we hear. And the same can be true when it comes to abortion on demand, that we believe perhaps the most strong and dominant slogan that sums up so much pro-abortion thinking, my body, my choice. Who could argue with that? My body, my choice. But if we're not to go with, if we're to resist going with the flow of just majority opinion in our culture, we've got to interrogate that statement because it's dangerous just to accept what everybody else believes without knowing why we believe it, without thinking for ourselves. I like the way uh, a very intelligent man called Douglas Murray does this in his book, The Madness of Crowds. And he calls his book, 
the title, The Madness of Crowds, to sum up the dangers of just going with majority opinion. And he's writing on some extremely sensitive topics, uh, gay, women, race, and trans, and he himself is a gay atheist. He writes this, we are asked to believe things that are unbelievable. Now, some time ago, people would have criticized the church for that primarily, uh, asking to believe in the resurrection and miraculous. No, he's not talking about that at all. He's saying we are being asked by secularism to believe things that are unbelievable. As anyone who has lived under totalitarianism can attest, there is something demeaning and eventually soul-destroying about being expected to go along with the claims you do not believe to be true and cannot hold to be true. If the belief is that all people should be regarded as having equal value and be accorded equal dignity, then that may be all well and good. If you are asked to believe that there are no differences between homosexuality and heterosexuality, men and women, racism and anti-racism, then this will in time drive you to distraction. That distraction or crowd madness is something that we are in the middle of and something we need to try to find our way out from. The madness of just following majority opinion. My body, my choice though, at one level is true. God has given people the ability to self-determine and to make their own choices, to decide, for example, who they should have sex with and, and when. But those choices have consequences that limit or increase other choices that could be made in the future. We don't always have ultimate choice for every decision that we're going to make in life. More than that, though, couldn't the unborn child claim the same slogan? My body, my choice. And then shouldn't we be rather uncomfortable about the, the powerful, stronger group saying, no, you can't benefit that, from that to the weaker group? It doesn't sit right, does it? We need to ask the question of where do we go to find, find the truth about when life begins and therefore is worthy, right to protect it? I argued, argued last year that we can do that philosophically and scientifically and, of course, biblically. And when we do so, everything points towards conception and that it's dangerous not to have that moment. Otherwise, it becomes arbitrary and uncertain. There's no real clear fixed point of when we should protect life. And people end up arguing, as they do today, that it's solely based on function on a person's ability to perform and do certain things, that's what makes them worthy of protection. But what about people in a coma? Do they lose the right to life? Should we just kill them all because they've stopped functioning? And we don't know whether they will recover that function or not. Or what about when we sleep? Can we be certain that we'll just wake up, carry on as we were before? Or, or do we even know that person to know that they had those functions before? and that they will be restored to them when they wake up. You get into all sorts of difficult problems when we start to go away from God's truth. The truth we can trust is found in Jesus. And as we approach Christmas, it should be more obvious than ever that God in the miraculous conception sanctifies 
the whole process from conception, first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, by going through the process himself. He doesn't just show up as a baby or an adult. He shows us that life is precious from the very moment of conception all the way through. How, though, does Pontius Pilate react? He says this, am I a Jew? (laughs) He's saying, I'm a Roman. This might be true for the Jews over here, but it's got nothing to do with me over here because I'm a Roman. He's got a really small view of truth. He doesn't understand that what is true for one person should be true for every person. And his small view of truth is because he's got a small-minded view of the person stood right in front of him, of Jesus. How blind we can be to the obvious. The second question is, which kingdom are you living for? Which kingdom are you living for? Jesus says this, verse 36 that his kingdom is not of this world. And then again, that his kingdom is not from this world. And he explains this to Pilate by saying, if my kingdom was of the earth, then my followers would, would fight to protect me, to stop me from being handed over to the Jews and to you. I wouldn't be here. He's saying, I've got enough of a following that this wouldn't, wouldn't happen. Jesus goes so far in that that he rebukes one of his disciples for cutting the ear off a soldier to try and protect him. He's saying, that's not my kingdom. And so we have here an incredible comparison between two kingdoms, two ways to live. On the one side, you've got the kingdom that fights for its rights to hold on to them. The only way to get rights is you've got to fight for them. On the other side, you have trusting God for your rights. In this kingdom, we have Pontius Pilate. He's fraught and he's anxiously trying to hold on to power. He's fearful that others might grow up underneath him and take his position of power. He's afraid of what his bosses might think above him and even the great emperor of Rome. He's anxious and fearful. Jesus is so calm and thoughtful even in the face of all the horrors that he knows that are coming. If you keep reading, the very next verse, the beginning of chapter 19, says he's going to be flogged. Yet he's calm and thoughtful. This kingdom abuses truth to serve itself. That's the kingdom of earth. This kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, uses truth to save souls. And I know which kingdom I want to be in. (laughs) I know which kingdom I am in, that by faith I become a citizen of this amazing kingdom. My challenge is, though I'm a citizen of this kingdom, I end up living in this kingdom, the kingdom of me. Practically. What about you? And this is the issue with abortion on demand. The kingdom of me. So many are so busy fighting for their rights that they lose sight of the rights of others, especially the unborn child. 
Here's the third, the final question. Whose voice are you listening to? Or let me put it another way. Are you listening to Jesus's voice of truth? Verse 37, Jesus says, he's come from heaven. He's come to give us a truth that we so desperately need. All else we have is our own authority, our own understanding to sort of bolster what might be true, might not be true. He comes from outside of that, from above with a higher truth into our world to bear witness to what is really true, what really matters. He comes to show us reality free from all the smoke and mirror deceptions of this world. He comes to show us how we can find true happiness. True happiness, he's saying, is not found in sex without strings, having all these relationships with other people who aren't truly committed to love you in that most intimate way, where it's not just a union of physicality, it's a union of two people giving their everything to each other. He's saying true happiness isn't found in abortion as a contraception. That way will lead only to guilt and pain. As many, even the artist Tracy Emin would describe, the colossal damage that that did to her. Jesus is coming to, to show us that becoming a parent, becoming a mother, isn't a death sentence. You know, it is hard being a parent, but it's so full of joy and happiness and wonder and life. It's just a delight to so many. And that there are people who are crying tears over their inability right now because they so long to be able to have a child. Jesus is going to come in to show us to line up with the right way that we were made. And even if it's not right for you to keep this child for yourself. There are so many who would love to adopt the child as well. He's coming to expose all of that, that wrong thinking. And he's doing it at ultimately a fundamental way. And we'll see that shortly. He's saying the highest truth is that giving is better than receiving. Giving is better than taking. That self-sacrifice is more glorious than self-service. Let me explain how he does that by asking a question. And it's really this. Did Jesus answer Pilate's question? What is truth? Most, I think, would say that Jesus didn't answer that question. He left it hanging out there. Maybe he didn't consider it worthy of an answer. I think that Jesus very clearly answered the question. Ah, oh, but you say, but he doesn't, he doesn't say anything. Yeah, and that is my point. Jesus doesn't need to say anything. He answers the questions with the, all the actions that are about to follow. And there is a trailer of that that is coming in these final verses. Here is Jesus. He is fully God, who is in control of all things, who could crush Pilate, who could crush all of Palestine with his little finger, who is choosing in this moment to allow himself to be thrown to these unjust authorities so that they can judge him. And in an extraordinary way, he's choosing to allow himself to be swapped with Barabbas, this robber, to trade places with him and at Passover that God has organized for this substitutionary swapping 
to take place. Passover, if you don't know, goes all the way back to the second book of the Bible, to Exodus, to a people enslaved in, in tyranny under Pharaoh in Egypt. And, and God saying that he's going to judge that nation of Egypt for their wrongdoing. But in order to escape, you need to sacrifice a lamb, a pure spotless lamb. And the judgment will go on that lamb as you paint the blood of that lamb on the wooden timbers, like the wooden timbers of the cross. And then God's judgment is going to go over that. And now all this way forward, we hear that Jesus is going to die in the place of a robber. Wow. This is the greatest story. It's why every other story that connects with this story moves our heart. I think of David Copperfield, Charles Dickens' David Copperfield, this autobiographical film recently remade, and there's a moment of beauty within it where David Copperfield has come out to the sort of to the sea, to the coast, to meet with a very simple, poor family who are fishing people. And there's a man there called Ham who's betrothed to his childhood sweetheart, this other precious woman. But Copperfield, David Copperfield, has come with one of his friends, Steerforth, the very impressive, dashing, intelligent, more wealthy man. And Steerforth sort of sweeps this precious, engaged girl off her feet. They run off together. Ham is obviously heartbroken. He spends the next many, many months searching for his sweetheart until he finds her. She's been discarded into squalor by Steerforth, who's disappeared. And then in the story, we hear that Steerforth is coming back on a ship in the sea, and he's very close to where this fishing family live, and a storm has got up, and it's a life-threatening storm. And who goes? Who goes to risk his life to rescue him? It's Ham. Ham, this man who owes Steerforth nothing but hatred, uh, who's hurt him so much, but Ham goes and he risks his life to save Steerforth, but ultimately is unsuccessful. And it moves us because it, it's the ultimate story that we're wired to learn and understand about Jesus. But Jesus is successful where Ham fails. He comes and he trades places with not just Barabbas, but with you and me, with career criminal politicians. We're just like Pilate. That instead of regularly doing the right thing, we so often end up doing what is personally convenient for us. And we find ways out of this to sort of alleviate our guilt to put it on others, to distance ourselves from it. This is what Pilate's doing. He thinks he's being really clever. Let me give you the choice. So you have the choice so it doesn't fall on me. Then it's nothing to do with me whether I'm responsible or not. And we can do the same thing with abortion. We can say it's not to do with me. It's about the choice of those who decide whether to have or not have an abortion. But I tell you, we have a responsibility to speak up and make sure that choice that so important choice is put to people in the right way with truth. We can often be like Pilate as well. And we lack the courage of our convictions. Pilate knew Jesus was not guilty. And that means that he should have been acquitted and walked free. 
Pilate doesn't do that. We know that unborn children are not guilty. But so often we're afraid of what might happen. If we speak out, if we talk about this topic, we'll be criticized, we'll be ostracized, we'll be avoided, all that kind of stuff. It's too intense, so we don't say anything. What are the alternatives? Well, the pilot alternative is to wash your hands. He literally does that to try and wash himself of the guilt. But history shows it's, it's, we hold him accountable. 2,000 years later, he's guilty. We all see it. We all know it. Washing yourself of your guilt doesn't work. But here's the good news. We can be washed by Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice. He comes to show us this higher truth, to give his life, to sacrifice it for all our wrongdoing, all our sin, all our guilt, all our shame, all our apathy, all our indifference, all our self-serving. He comes to cleanse us of it all. He comes to cleanse us of any sin we've committed in relation to abortion, whether that's we've had an abortion or whether that's we've just not done anything to help people with this whole issue of abortion. He comes to clean us whiter than snow. It's a wonderful, glorious truth. And he comes to set us free from all that bad thinking that can so enslave us by his loving sacrifice. How do we receive that? Well, we listen to his voice of truth. We make sure we're on his side by faith, by trusting him. Whose side are you on? I pray and hope that you're on Jesus' side in this. And that you'll stand with us to fight for truth. We're not fighting against flesh and blood people. We're fighting against spiritual powers and authorities. Worldviews and bad thinking. How do we do that? I want to give you four ways. It starts firstly with repentance. This is turning from this kingdom of me living that we would live for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Letting him rewire our minds from all the bad thinking that, that so gets in that we would live out his truth. Repentance. Second thing is love. That above all we would love anybody caught up in this issue. We would love those who oppose us, who are on the other side of this issue. We would never judge them. The third thing is that we would pray. We would persistently pray for the ending of abortion in our nation and around the world. And that we would pray for those in authority who lead us in Parliament, in the House of Commons, in the House of Lords, that they would taste something of the bitterness of this great injustice. The fourth thing is action. We would increase our support of pregnancy crisis centres like the gate that we run here with other churches in Westminster. That we would encourage and support people who get involved with adoption as much as we possibly can and also that we would write persuasively and winsomely to our MPs. 
Our call is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Filled up and empowered by Jesus, by his love. We're here to show the world a higher truth, a better way. Through our words and especially through our actions. That giving is better than receiving. That self-sacrifice is more glorious than self-service. That we have something so good in our lives that we're willing to give up anything and everything for it. We're not afraid if we're criticised because we have the love of God and that's what matters more than anything. And if we do this, church, we'll make a difference because the lasting message of this trial scene is not Pilate, it's Jesus. Jesus has endured and we will endure and we will see breakthrough and victory in this issue as we persistently follow the way of Jesus. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that you came and you died for us on a cross. We thank you that you show us that the way to live is not to fight for our rights, but to surrender to you and to trust you to provide for all that we would need. Thank you that you're a good God. And Lord, we pray for the courage, for the strength, for the emboldening to be your hands and feet, to speak truth in love, to speak truth to power and authority, to speak truth to everybody that we might meet on this issue. We pray for those who've caught up in abortion. God, we pray for their supernatural healing. I pray that you would break off condemnation from being upon them by your love ministering to them through the cross. I pray for all of us caught up with sin issues. God, help us to confess them today, to repent and turn from them today and to rejoice in the love that you have for us. Lord God, help us to break free from living for the kingdom of me and let us live for the glorious kingdom of Jesus. Let us know your power as we seek to go forth and glorify your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.